Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father, living in me, who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. As always, we're going to have a, a time of Q&A, a time in, of open questions for you uh, right after this, and so please feel free to jot any down or keep them in mind, and we'll have some dialogue afterwards. But first, let's look at this passage, and let's say a word of prayer. Let's pray. God, we need you to be present during this time. Father, I personally acknowledge to you and before these friends, uh, just in my heart, this desire that I've been struggling with this week to make a name for myself, to be known. I repent of that, and I pray that in these moments you would set me free from that lust of heart, that ambition, that this time would be for the good of your people, be good, for the good of all people, and most especially that it would be a delight to your ears and your heart. So take these words, take your word, and make it come alive and do life in our midst. Send your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the things that make it hard for us, for you, to embrace the Christian faith? What are the things that make it hard for us to embrace the Christian faith. That's what we're going to be looking at in our new sermon series called Questioning Christianity. And so our goal over the next four weeks is to have an honest and hopefully thoughtful conversation together about common objections and doubts that people commonly have about the Christian faith that you might have that might be keeping you from being able to fully embrace or more fully embrace the person of Jesus. Because there are lots of good reasons, yes, respectable ones, why you might not believe lots of things that might turn you off to Jesus, to the church, to the Christian faith. 
See, it's true. It's true that we struggle, that we say no to the things that we are learning or that are proposed to us about the reality of God as offered up in Christianity. But here we'll take them one by one today. We're starting by tackling this one, but very common and very understandable objection. It's this, that Christianity is just simply too exclusive. There can't just be one right way to God, one true religion. There are many equally valid religious paths to God, and to believe otherwise is arrogant and even dangerous. Really, it's true. Christianity's exclusivity, that is, its view that there is one right way to God and that all other religious approaches are excluded, it's a real issue. It really is. And it's grounded not in some arbitrary, angry opinion of Christians who think they have a corner market on the truth. It's actually grounded in the life and ministry of Jesus himself, as this passage illustrates. This part of John 14 is taken as a short excerpt from what's often sometimes called the farewell discourse in the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book in the New Testament. Jesus is speaking with his disciples, his followers, during the Last Supper, during the last few hours before he will be crucified and killed. And here, in this short statement, this short dialogue with his disciples, he makes no less than five massive claims about his uniqueness. First of all, you might have noticed, it says in verse 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. A general belief in God, Jesus tell us, tells us, a general belief in God is not enough. He's talking to ancient monotheistic Jewish men, and he says, you need to trust in me in the same way that you trust in God. Second, in verse 6, Jesus claims, I am the way. Specifically, the way that Jesus is referring to in this conversation is the way to heaven. In verses 3 and 4, Jesus tells his disciples, I go and prepare a place for you in my Father's house. He's talking about heaven. You know the way to the place where I am going. According to Jesus, you cannot get to heaven apart from Jesus. Thirdly, Jesus claims, I am the truth. Jesus doesn't simply explain truth to us. He says he is truth. As commentator Don Carson explains, Jesus is the truth because he embodies the supreme revelation of God. He himself narrates God to us. He is God's gracious self-disclosure. Fourth, Jesus claims, I am the life. Jesus says he has the very life of God in him, and he offers that life to us as he offers himself to us. 
Do you want fullness of life? Jesus says he is that life. Life healed of sin and death, perfected life. Life as it was always meant to be lived, it's found in him. Fifth and finally, Jesus says in the second half of verse 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot know God, Jesus says, without knowing Jesus. He says again in the next verse, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him because you know me and see me. Bold, isn't it? To have a genuine relationship with God, you need to have a relationship with Jesus. Man, Jesus, isn't he making some incredible truth claims that, yes, excludes other claims of truth? Jesus doesn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He says, I am the way the truth, the life. He doesn't say, some come to God the Father through me. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And at this point, I want to acknowledge that it's absolutely understandable that we would just react against such absolute religious claims, even when they come directly from the mouth of Jesus. Because for someone to say, there's a a right way to do this about anything, let alone about the most important things about life, it starts to feel constraining to our freedom, doesn't it? Stop telling me what to do. Stop telling me how I need to think. I would have thought that, except until you told me that I had to think it. It feels like the height of arrogance for someone to say, in essence, I'm right and you're wrong. How can you believe that and not have just a major nasty superiority complex, huh? I mean, doesn't it lead to division? Isn't it dangerous? Isn't talk about the way, the truth, the life, the party line for religious extremists? Doesn't it even lead to violence? Hasn't it? Do you know what? Every Christian and I together with them needs to be able to say in response, actually, you're absolutely right. That this is the tendency of religious exclusivism. It can be dangerous. It can brew up a superiority complex that's not only divisive, but even dangerous and sometimes violent. It has been even in the history of the Christian church. We see this and we sense this, and so we experience intense discomfort and dissonance, don't we? Intellectually, and sometimes even more so emotionally. It just doesn't feel right. 
And we say, I don't want to be like that, or I don't want to be one of those. And so I think what we do is we try to fix the problem then, don't we? We say, well, this Jesus thing is good, but that's what you believe. That's what I believe, but that's not what everyone has to believe. In other words, we privatize and personalize religious belief. And then we take it a step further, and we democratize religious belief entirely. We say, well, everyone has a point of view. All religions are different, but equally valid approaches to what's really, in the end, the same God. Jesus is a way, perhaps a very good way, but no, 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 not the way. Let's not say that. And one of the most popular ways we communicate this point of view is through the well-known illustration of the elephant and the blind man. You may have heard of this. The story goes, and I believe it has its origins in, uh, in India from ancient times, the story goes that some blind men come upon an elephant for the first time. They have no idea what they have encountered, and each of them, one by one, place their hands upon some part of the elephant to try to decipher this mystery that is before them. One blind man feels the leg of the elephant and says, Aha! An elephant is like a pillar, tall and firm and round. And another blind man goes around to the front of the elephant and feels the trunk. And it says, yes, I have figured it out. An elephant is like a large snake. And the other blind man says, well, here I am. And he's feeling the large, flappy ear of an elephant. And he says, an elephant is like a fan. And yet another blind man says, well, I believe the elephant is like a rope as he carefully runs his fingers across the tail of the elephant. And finally, the last blind man feels the large body of the belly of the elephant and says, well, surely I'm right. The elephant is like a wall. The storyteller concludes with great philosophical insight that this is much like our religious pursuits. We are like the blind men in the story. We all have it partly right about God, but we all also have it partly wrong. That all religions are equally valid paths to God. We see parts of him. We get the trunk or the tail or the ear or the tusk or the trunk. But who can see the whole thing? No one can see the whole thing. And so it goes, therefore, we respect one another as we should. But we conclude that no one can have the whole truth. No one can dare to say they know what an elephant truly is, who God truly is, what the way, the truth, and the life really is. And it's helpful in many respects, a helpful story and illustration it is. But the fundamental flaw in this little story and the belief underneath it has been pointed out by several philosophers and thinkers. And the flaw goes something like this. The only reason why this illustration makes sense at all, the only way that we could even draw the conclusion that we can, 
is because you know what an elephant actually is. That the storyteller can actually see the elephant, can actually tell you what the whole thing really is to be able to say that, in fact, it's not just a tree trunk or a pillar. It's not just a fan. It's not just a snake. An elephant is an elephant. In other words, for this to make sense at all, you are claiming to be able to see the whole truth, which is the very thing you've said you cannot say. That people that claim with great conviction that it's not appropriate to make any kind of exclusivistic claim that Jesus is the way or any way is the way, but rather we need to say that every way is an equally valid way, in fact is making a deeply religious statement and is actually taking a very specific position of superior insight into all of reality. You're saying you can see that all things and all claims are equal claims. That all religions are valid paths to God. That all religions are the way, the truth, and the life. And maybe you're starting to notice this too, to say all religions are equally valid paths to God and anyone who believes differently is an exclusivist or a bigot, that itself is an exclusivist claim. What you're really saying then is that all religious beliefs are valid except for the belief that all religious beliefs are not equally valid. I'm not trying to take a cheap shot on folks who hold this view. I'm simply trying to point out that none of us can avoid making exclusive claims. As Ravi Zacharias, a Christian thinker, has put it, truth by definition is exclusive. Everything cannot be true. If everything is true, then nothing is false. And we, on a daily basis, live rightly, morally, sensibly, calling some things false. As Tim Keller, an author and pastor in New York City, has written and said, helpfully here, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions is right. Let me say that again. It's no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all religions are equal, is right. We're all making exclusive claims. We're all pinning something down and saying this is true about reality. We're all exclusivists in some way, aren't we? We can talk about that idea some more in a few minutes. But what if Jesus' exclusivity is of a different kind? Could there be something unique about his sort of truth claim, exclusive truth claim. I think there is, and this passage points us to it. What we find here are really three ingredients that lie beneath the surface, that inform 
the way that Jesus is offering himself to us. Number one, it's the impossibility of salvation. Number two, the inclusivity of grace. And number three, the humility of truth. We'll finish with that. Number one, the impossibility of salvation. As the author and thinker now past John Stott has put it, the hardest thing for God to do is to forgive sins. The problem for God is how to show mercy to evil, sinful, selfish people like you and me without compromising his essential character of being a just God. In fact, in the world as it is for God to forgive sins in a just and moral world is impossible. I mean, let me put it to you this way. A lot of us tend to believe that if God is merciful, he should just be able to sort of look the other way and just kind of sort of forget the wrongs that we do or the terribleness that happens in our world day to day, even minute to minute. But I would caution us from going down that road, even though it's convenient in some ways because it lets me off the hook. I'm not sure we want to live in such a world. I'm not sure that we want a moral universe where God is not committed to his justice. Not sure we want to live in a world where God ultimately ignores sexual abuse and human trafficking and winks at infanticide and genocide. Who cares not about corporate greed and wounding words and racial injustice? We want, we have a God who is committed to righting all these wrongs, a God of justice. What we need and what we want is a God who deeply cares about evil and injustice in the world and who cares about forgiving and loving sinners like you and me, a God of justice and a God of mercy. Where do you find that? Christian scriptures tell us in the cross of Jesus Christ. The impossibility of Jesus's exclusivity. Jesus himself here says in verse 8, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. It is the Father living in me who's doing his work. Believe me, verse 11, when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus was a true human being. He's very clear here. He's also God. And why this is significant is that he was on the cross, our human representative before the courtroom of God. And what happened in that moment as he suffered was that he was suffering the just, yes, justice, punishment for all the selfishness of the sins of those who would one day embrace him with faith. So that we wouldn't receive justice as we deserve, but rather justice would be satisfied on his head in his blood by his death on the cross in my place. So God isn't looking away or forgetting our wrongs. He's not ignoring injustice. He's paying for it 
on the head of Jesus for those who would embrace him. This here in the cross is Jesus purchasing our forgiveness by taking our punishment for sin. And what you have, therefore, is perfect justice and perfect mercy satisfied side by side in the cross of Christ. And this is the only way that God could extend mercy to sinners and preserve justice in our world at the same time. What Jesus is telling us is there was only one way for God to remain a God of justice and mercy, only one way for the world to be a place where evil is still called evil and where forgiveness is possible at the same time. It's uniquely found in him. The exclusivity of Christianity is because of salvation's impossibility. You have to find a way where you can meet the living God and not get crushed, where you can be forgiven of your sins and still know the judge of the world as your savior, as your king, as your father. The impossibility of salvation. Secondly, the inclusivity of grace. Notice Jesus is talking about getting to heaven, but at no point does he point you to what you need to get there, what you need to do in order to get there. And this really should surprise us, right? Most religions and philosophies of life, including distorted versions of Christianity, are based on the belief that your status before God depends upon your performance, what you do religiously or morally, or the sincerity of your heart. You are the way, if you try hard enough to be good enough. You are the truth, if you know or learn enough. You are the life, if you show your life worthy enough. Jesus is nothing like that. Most people believe that you make it to heaven by being good or by trying hard. But do you realize actually how exclusive that is? I mean, how hard do you have to have tried? What kind of moral ability do you actually have had to have needed? What if you were born into an abusive family and now your life is sort of in shambles and you're acting out of your woundedness? Are you excluded? What if you grew up in a rough neighborhood? What if life has been really hard? What if you have no advantage morally in any sort of way? Just to say God accepts those who are good, those who are upstanding, those who look good, is actually a terribly exclusive way of salvation. Here's what Jesus shows us a different way, the way of grace. where the way isn't a code of trying your best to be a good person, where the truth isn't just a set of religious rituals, where the life isn't a vision of a perfectly moral life. That's the way you get to heaven. That's the way you get right with God. No, Jesus doesn't point to you and me at all. He points to himself. The way, the truth, and the life 
is a person. As one commentator said, when Jesus says, I am the way, he's not showing us the path we walk, but the person we cling to. Because Jesus walked in a way that we could not walk and died the death that we could not die, lived the life that we would not live for our salvation that we might be right with God and found in heaven. But this is the story of grace. He has done it for us because we could never do it for ourselves. God saves the weak, saves the helpless, saves the humble, which are simply those that acknowledge that they're helpless. And it's accepting that low status with joy and gratitude that makes you a Christian. It's actually believing that the wrong kind of people, quote-unquote, can be saved. Anybody can be saved if you would just lay down your ego. Anybody. There's no more inclusive, exclusive truth claim in the whole world. That anybody has a chance. You have a chance by the grace of God. Which leads us to the humility of truth. You see, if salvation, if heaven is by grace and not by strength, it's, if it's by a person, Jesus, and not by your personal performance, then what's feeding your ego now? What if the way of Jesus is a way that doesn't give you anything to boast in, in yourself? What if life in Jesus requires the death of your pride? and your self-sufficiency? What if the truth of Jesus is a truth that makes you more humble? What if there's a truth for which, yes, even an exclusive truth, for which the more you discover it, the more humble you become, the deeper you drill down into it, the more it calls you out on your self-righteousness, your superiority complexes. What if it's a truth that leads you to say, I'm saved by grace? Not because I discovered the truth, but because Christ discovered me. Not because I'm right, but because God loves me even though I'm wrong, deathly wrong. Which is what's so ironic about all the, the all religions are equally valid points of view. Because sometimes you can even feel so strongly about that, that unbeknownst to yourself, you can become just as arrogant and self-righteous as those you're seeking to not become like. After all, you're an exclusivist. And that's what most forms, every form of exclusivism does. I'm right and you're wrong. Except for perhaps the exclusivism and inclusivism of the way of grace, 
of Jesus. Many people today are not only looking for a religion that's true, they are, I think you are, I am, longing for one that produces true harmony and true humility. I think there's one that can. Jesus' exclusivity is an exclusivity you deeply need, one you deeply want. Let's pray. We pray that you would continue to help us to seek you, that we might find you and understand these things about you, dear God, every person here. Most of all, that at the end we would rejoice in your grace, that we who were lost have been found, who have been dead have been brought to life. This is the story of the one who claims who is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.